There is the call today for a greater recognition. And that has been displayed among the trade unions in the week that has passed. There is the call today to have authority and power. And that has been heard with the pleas for the return of the legislative body that is supposed to govern this province. Men and women, while those sentiments may be true of many today, yet I want you to understand that there's nothing new under the sun. For within the heart of men, there's always been the same desire. And in this very passage that we've read together this evening, there were two disciples, two who were among the very closest of the Lord's disciples, and their ambition was to sit one on the right hand and one on the left hand of the Savior in his kingdom. And what's more, they had a mother, the wife of Zebedee, who one, it was one who was prepared to approach the Savior with their request. This was not just a mother who desired the best for her two sons, as every mother would. But the verses that follow here, and especially if you notice in the manner in which the Savior gives his reply, it can be seen that the sons knew all about the request. You notice the words of verse 22. The end of that verse, it says, They say unto him, We are able. Verse 23, And he saith unto them. He just didn't answer the mother. He answered the two sons. They were also party to this. And what also can be noticed is that it was a cause of dispute among the other disciples. They too desired such an exalted place. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. They wanted that place. I have just a little marginal note there in my Bible saying this, pride is the coat we put off last and which we put on first. And here was the other disciples and they desired the very same thing. Their hearts were no different in this regard. They too were driven by this desire to be recognized in seats of power. But men and women, uh, by the Savior's words, were given to see that the way to be great and the way to be chief is the very opposite of what this world thinks. It is to be humble. It is to be serviceful. And you have no greater example of that than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For in the words of my text that I bring you, and I'm sure you worked it out. Verse 28, we have a servant for a ransom for many. You'll notice there the description of Christ. Let me read the verse. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. There's a description of the Lord there. It is not in any one of us to determine who will be great or chiefest among men. Anything we are, anything we have is what God permits. For we recognize that it is the Lord who causes one to be raised up and it is the Lord who puts another down. And when it came to this request with regard to the kingdom, then the same has to apply. 
For that is what the Lord is teaching in verse 26. He says, but it shall not be so among you. That's what it is found among the Gentiles, he's saying, how they exercise dominion. But it is not so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And you'll note that in the same breath that he speaks about this, there follows the words minister and servant. And our minds are drawn to consider the one who's described as the great shepherd, as the chief shepherd, and yet he was one who was to be a servant. And that is something that was prophesied. For if we consider the words of the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the Lord was even to come to this earth, he's heard to speak of this servant. Isaiah chapter 42 and the words of verse 1, the Lord says through his servant, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Verse 4, he shall not feel nor be discouraged till he has said judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. They can only speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a man that can say he'll never feel or never be discouraged. Yet it was true of the Lord. God says, give attention to my servant. He is that servant of God who shall not feel. And there's only one of whom such a description could fit. The Savior is spoken of in the Old Testament in terms and in reference to being a servant. He's God's servant. And what's more, if you look at our text, we also see the person of this servant. There's a title there that the Savior uses in these words. It describes the very fact that Christ has come to be a servant. He calls himself the Son of Man. He who was the eternal Son of God, yet he condescended to become the Son of Man. He who was served by the angels in heaven, yet he was to come to this earth to be the Son of Man. And that title denotes his lowliness and his humility. For Christ came to this world not to set up his kingdom. He didn't come to exalt himself above men. Oh, he had every uh, right and uh, justification in doing so, but he didn't. This was the Son of God. This was the co-creator of the heavens and the earth. This was the well-beloved of the Father, but he came to be the Son of Man. He identified himself with man. He walked among men, and one day he would die for men on that old cross of Calvary. But don't miss it, even in this Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is the gospel that emphasizes much of Christ being the king. And you will uh, understand that the other gospels bring out a different angle. And so it's just like you and me. If we went up the town and we saw some incident and the PSNI came to us and said, well, can you give me an account of it? My account might be different slightly than yours. And Matthew comes from the angle that Christ is king. Mark, he's different. He comes from the angle that, that Christ is a servant. And it's always a very busy gospel. John's gospel is totally different again. It's of the divine. He's God. 
But Matthew's gospel, just to get back to what I've said, he majors on Christ being king. It can be seen right from the very beginning. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men came and they asked the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And what follows is much about Christ as king and his kingdom. But even that is so. Matthew doesn't evade the truth that Christ was man and that he was the son of man. There are his two distinct natures. His humanity and his divinity brought together in one perfect person, the blessed God-man. And here in this verse, that is how the Lord refers to himself as the greatest example of one who took the lowly place for he was the Son of Man. But understand that being a servant was also not something only that was prophesied but was the practice of Christ himself. We could speak of the many instances where he is seen to take the lowly, humble place. Where he was busily engaged in serving others, especially those who were in the greatest and deepest need. Of the time in which he was to manifest his power in the healing of the blind or the healing of the lame. He served their needs. Of that time where he came and healed the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, he served her needs. Of that occasion where he served the disciples in the upper room or indeed upon the seashore after his resurrection when he had prepared for them something to eat. I bring you to that. John chapter 21, the words of verse 12 says, Jesus said unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing it was the Lord? Verse 13 says, Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. The Savior giveth them. His life was one of giving. His life was one of serving in practice. It was what the Lord himself was to say to his disciples. As you have it recorded in Luke's Gospel 22 the words of verse 27. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. He was to be continually serving. And I want to I tell you tonight, I want you to understand his practice is still the same in heaven. He continues to serve his people. He continues to live in the power of an endless life that he might continually pray for his people. He continues to serve the blessings of God and of his so great and full salvation upon this people. We could say in the words of the hymn writer, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. But the wonder of it all is that he became the son of man for the sake of guilty hell deserving sinners like you and I. It is wonderful almost beyond comprehension that he came down to this sin-blighted world not to be ministered unto, but an even greater wonder is that the Son of God came at all to be the servant of men. I wonder, dear loved one, without the Savior tonight, have you ever considered that? That Christ Jesus, the Son of God, should stoop so low and humble himself to re and to render a service and that he would do it for a rebel. For that's what we were in Adam. And that he would do it for, up until now, a Christ rejecter where you are concerned. That the one from whom comes all blessings and who gives us all things 
should continue to be merciful and give you the very breath in your body tonight. For it is the Lord and Him we live, we move, and we have our very being so that you might avail yourself of another opportunity in the gospel and so that you could be saved. Never think of that? He came not to be ministered unto. The description of Christ here is as a servant. But you'll notice also here in my text the duty of Christ. For while we hear the Savior speak of why he did not come to this world, that is, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, we're also given the reason why he did come. The Son of Man came to minister. And to take those two words to minister, we're given an insight into something of the earthly ministry of the Savior. To do that, we must define the word minister. It gives a thought of one executing the demands of another. In other words, it's the servant, it's not the master. The Lord Jesus Christ was one who came to serve and to minister unto others, yet he's the master of all things. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. I want you to see it illustrated in another passage, Luke chapter 10. We have the same word used there. You don't need to turn it up because it's a very familiar passage to you. And it is of that time where Martha complained about Mary having left her to serve alone. And Martha was the one who was left to do all the serving for the supper that evening. While Mary was one who sat. But on this occasion, her fault wasn't that she sat at the table for meat. Her fault was, in Martha's mind, she sat at the Savior's feet. But the Savior said she had that good part that could not be taken from her. You see, he is the bread of life. But the word is used there that Martha was left to serve alone. The Savior was the one whom it is defined was the servant. And to further consider the earthly ministry of the Savior, we affirm that it was declared, if you consider the words of Philippians chapter 2, and verse 7, Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he speaks those great verses about the Savior. And he says in verse 6, just to give you the background, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And men and women, if you start there at verse 6 and you continue verse by verse, there's a descent. There is a, his humiliation until you get to verse 9 and then there's his exaltation because God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Here we're told that when the Lord left heaven for this world, he came taking upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Was there any servant ever like Christ? He came as the only Savior of the world in order that he might serve sinners. He came the one in whom the heaven of heavens could not contain, yet he was to take upon himself the form of our nature, yet without sin. And he was made in the likeness of men. I read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, I believe it reminds us that he was no ordinary man. 
Because it simply says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weaknesses, if you like, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He was the sinless, the spotless Lamb of God. In him there was no guile. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. In him there was no sin. He could not sin. The devil had nothing in him. The Savior had to have a perfect humanity if he was ever going to be our Redeemer. The Son of Man was one who had absolute purity about him. And as a servant, he had come to do the will of the Father who had sent him. He could say in John 4, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And what he stated at the start of his ministry, he was to show it right the way through it. Until in the garden, the Gethsemane, On the way to the cross, he yet could say, Not my will, but thine be done. His ministry was to serve sinners, but his ministry was also to save sinners. For we read in Matthew chapter 18 and 11, For the Son of Man, there it is again, that title, He came to save that which was lost. And that was why he set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem. That is why he would not turn to the left nor to the right, for his ministry would mean one day him ascending the hill of Golgotha and there in that open place, in that public thoroughfare, Christ, the Christ of God, the Son of Man, was to give us all so that he would purchase a full salvation to all who will come. Tell me, my friend, does it mean anything to you tonight that the Savior should be willing to live for you and to die for you on that old Roman gibbet? Does it mean anything to you that his earthly ministry was one of a faithful service and of complete obedience to the Father's will, even though it meant that awful, never-to-be-forgotten day at Calvary? Does it mean anything? It might have reached the head, but I'm asking, has it reached your heart? The Savior came to minister. And that ministry, man and woman, young person, will mean the difference between heaven or hell for a sinner like you. That's how vital it is. I wonder what is it going to be for you tonight? There is the duty of Christ. But you know, the end of my text, it brings us to consider the death of Christ. The climax of the Savior's ministry was when he would die for sinners. The final part of my text thrusts us forward in time to Calvary. For in those words, I want you to see the purpose of his death. It was to give his life. He who had gone about giving his word The prince of preachers, when the people heard them, they were astonished. They'd never heard one preach as Christ did. And he was now to give his very life. In John 10 and 11, that chapter about the shepherd and the sheep were given the same truth. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. 
He had not merely come to live an exemplary life, an exemplary life before others, but he came to lay down his life in the place of guilty sinners. And of course we know from that same chapter that no man taketh his life from him. He had the power to lay down his life. He had the power to take it up again. It speaks of his perfect submission to the plan and to the work of God's salvation. That's why he came. And it was to give his life as a once for all sacrifice for sin. That's why he partook of flesh and blood that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. I present before you tonight one who is a perfect, a sinless savior and yet one who was to give his life for a wretch like you and I. That he might save you from your sins and an eternal punishment for them in hell itself. And for God's salvation to be effectual. And so that the sinner could be saved. You know there had to be a price to be paid. And thank God we read in our text tonight that Jesus was to pay that full price. Through his death. It states. And to give his life a ransom. I draw your attention to the word ransom. It's a word that is used in the English dictionary these days. It might often be found in the context of one being held hostage and a ransom is demanded for their freedom or for their liberty. And so it is in the spiritual sense. For you sinner born in sin are held in the bondage of it. The sinner tonight is held by many a chain of the devil, many a snare. And that snare might be different for you than it is the one behind you or the one up the street or your neighbor. It's a different snare, but it's still the snare of the devil. But there's one who is the great emancipator. One who became us, who was to pay the greatest price so that you and I could go free from the slave market of sin. And that one is Jesus Christ, for he gave his life as a ransom for our souls. And you remember that the Old Testament teaching tells us that the life is in the blood. I read in Leviticus chapter 17, and verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. God's justice demanded the blood be shed. It was seen right back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God took that animal and blood was shed and he clothed Adam and Eve, our first parents, uh, with the skins of that animal. And everyone since, the sacrifices that were offered, time without number, all pointed forth to Calvary. Why? Because there God's lamb would shed his own precious blood. He would fulfill what God's law demanded. For that was the price by which he was to purchase our salvation and our deliverance. He paid the full price that we might be saved, that we might go free. 
from the prison house of sin. God's redemption is not through corruptible things, such as silver or gold. Oh, how many, how many today have gone to a house of worship and they have thought that they'll get into heaven by what they throw on the plate. God's redemption is not through incorruptible things such as silver, the coinage of silver, the coinage of gold. But it is through the precious blood of God's Lamb. That Lamb without spot, without blemish. 1 Corinthians 5 and 20 we read, For we're bought with a price. Maybe there's a wee word for the child of God tonight. We always rejoice in hearing the gospel preached to our souls, even if we're saved. But you know, there's always the application to our hearts as well. And there is a little application, dear believer, that you're not your own. Christ has bought you. Christ has purchased your salvation and mine at the greatest price, even the giving of his life's blood. Therefore, we will not want to live unto ourselves. We'll not want to live unto the world. We'll want to live unto him who has bought us. And dear loved one, without Christ tonight, the good news is that you can be redeemed from the slave market of your sin this evening. For that price has lost none of its ancient power. The blood has been shed. The price has been paid. The cry has been made on the cross where Christ said, it is finished. The work is done. God's redemption is through the ransom having been paid and Jesus paid it all. He gave his life as a ransom. And finally, you'll notice his people. For it says, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Savior was to die for all the sins of all his people on the cross. Every last one of them. And that work was sufficient to save every last one of them. And I please want you to note that it doesn't state that he gave his life a ransom for all. It's for many. We've been thinking of the two disciples. We've been thinking of their aspirations to sit on the left hand, the right hand of Christ. There's another disciple. His name was Judas. Judas was the one who was, betraying, was to betray the Savior into the hands of the soldiers. Judas Iscariot was never saved. Judas went out into the night. It was an eternal night. For he went to his own place. Why, men and women? Satan had entered into him. He wasn't one of the many of this verse. You think of the rich man that we read about in Luke chapter 15. That rich man who died and in hell he lifted up his eyes was not found among that word many. Had he been so then the accusing finger could have been pointed at the Savior. The charge would have been your work on the cross has failed the rich man. He's in hell tonight. But you know that cannot be. Why? Because Christ shall not fail. He's God's perfect servant. 
You think of King Agrippa. He heard the claims of the gospel. He was almost persuaded to be a Christian, but almost wasn't altogether. It was to be lost. He wasn't found among this many. And when you read this word, again it brings us back into Isaiah, to that great chapter of the cross. Because we read in Isaiah 53, just read with me the words of verse 11 and 12. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. My dear friend, the death of Christ is sufficient for every one of the many. The death of Christ is sufficient to save unto the uttermost. And I thank God for the scope of that word. It takes in a great multitude of which no man can number. How many will be in heaven? I don't know. All that I'm told as you are is that it will be a number that no man can number. Ah, but I do know this, it takes in me. And every one of you of his people on that great and final day will be gathered in. But what about, my friend, you tonight? As an individual in this house, and you're not saved, I wonder, dear listener, are you numbered among this many? You can have the assurance that you are. If you will repent of your sin and come to Christ. And you see, dear loved one, that's why it is so urgent that you do so as God's Spirit is striving with you. For you cannot come unless the Lord draws. And I believe that he's striving and I believe that he's speaking. And yet you put him off, the one who paid it all, the one who gave his life for you that you might be redeemed. Now here's another opportunity. I wonder, will you come and be saved and be sure? Go out of this house saying, Preacher, Christ gave his life as a ransom for me. And part of that man I. May God help you and may the Lord bless his word to each and every heart tonight, even for his own name's sake. We'll sing 271, closing. Free from the low, happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once for all. That's what the words is at him, 271.
Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank the Lord, the Son of Man, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. We praise the Lord tonight that the sinner can know once for all God's salvation. O oh God, we thank the Lord for the perfect Lamb of God. We thank the Lord for the greatest price that was paid. We pray, Lord, in the closing seconds of our meeting tonight, that thou might strive by thy Spirit, and that soul, that young person or older, might yield, and they might repent of sin and take Christ as Lord and as Savior. That they might know what it is to be redeemed with precious blood and sure that they're part of God's many. Lord, part us with thy blessing. Give journey mercies home. Speak on when the preacher's voice is silent. For we ask these things in our Saviour's name. For God's great eternal glory. Amen.